It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 3.15, Sacagawea, Go West, Young Woman. Last time we closed off the story of Njinga, one of Africa's most successful rulers from the colonial era. Facing off against the might of the Portuguese, she managed to secure her kingdom, ensuring it would remain independent long after many of its neighbours had been colonised. Today, we travel 150 years forward and around 8,000 miles west to the American Great Plains to tell the story of Sacagawea. When I was planning this series on folk heroines, I was very keen to have someone from the United States represented. It's where most of my listeners are based, and many of you know I have family across the pond as well. But while some countries have quite an obvious candidate that immediately leaps out, it was surprisingly difficult to select one from the US. Folk heroines tend to emerge in periods of crisis, when a nation is being formed, in a period of civil strife, or under attack from a foreign invader. For the US, then, the ideal time for a woman to emerge would have been during the Revolutionary War or the Civil War, but those were real sausage vests. There were no significant female leaders on either side of either conflict, and while there were some notable women fighters like Molly Pitcher and Margaret Corbin, None of them really fit the bill as a national heroine. Move forward a little into the political wars of civil and voting rights, you do find some more applicable figures, women like Susan B. Anthony, Harriet Tubman and Rosa Parks. But they're potentially a little modern, and in any case, I'm saving them for a future series where they would be probably better suited. To me, a ferric heroine needs to be at the heart of the forging of a nation and an identity for better or for worse. She needs to be well-known, and preferably have her story shrouded in myth and legend. And, most importantly, she needs to have done something special, or at least said to have done something special. 
For me, there is only one woman in US history that truly fits the bill. And that is Sacagawea. She certainly has the largest footprint in terms of legacy. There are more rivers, mountains and memorials to her than any other woman in American history. But I'm going to start today with a coin. In May 1999, Hillary Rodham Clinton, then First Lady of the United States, made a speech at the White House unveiling the new Sacagawea dollar coin. She said, quote, Today we come from every corner of our country, from a rich diversity of backgrounds, to honour a common past and to imagine together a common future. We pay particularly tribute today to Indian women, whose cultural and spiritual contributions have enriched our lives and whose leadership have helped to change the course of history. Almost 200 years ago, President Thomas Jefferson would meet with Meriwether Lewis here at the White House, often into the night, to plan the great exploration of America's western frontier. But at the time they were talking and planning, neither man could have known that a young Shoshone woman would play a pivotal role in that historic endeavour. When Sacagawea joined the Lewis and Clark expedition, she was only 15 years old, and she was pregnant with her first child. She would be the only woman, the only Indian, and the only young person on that trip. Yet even as she cared for her baby, she demonstrated remarkable courage and ingenuity, serving the expedition as an invaluable interpreter and guide. Her knowledge of edible and medicinal plants also contributed greatly to the physical health of the party. According to Captain Clark, her very presence in the party of men represented a token of peace for all who approached. Sacagawea played an unforgettable role in the history of our nation. Today we celebrate the decision to honour this remarkable Shoshone woman in another remarkable way, by placing her image on the first US dollar coin of the new millennium. With this unveiling, we celebrate not only the extraordinary contributions that American Indian and Alaskan Native women have made to our country over hundreds of years, but we also acknowledge the even greater role they will play in our future. Yet even as we celebrate the historic and ongoing contribution of Indians to the development of America, we have to recognise that we have not always lived up to our own legal and moral obligations. While some in Indian country have made remarkable progress, far too many remain stranded in a cycle of poverty, their dreams further diminished by poor health, inadequate employment opportunities and dilapidated schools. Today, as we honour the past with this coin of Sacagawea and her baby, let us commit ourselves to a future where all children have the opportunity to be healthy, safe and cared for. Where all children have the opportunity to receive the quality education they need. And, as we build that common future, let us heed the words of that Iroquois oath of the peacemaker. You shall look and listen to the welfare of the whole people, and always have in view not only the present, but the coming generations of the unborn of the future nation. That is our obligation, and, I hope, our commitment. This speech, delivered nearly 200 years after the Lewis and Clark expedition, is an excellent summary of what we will be talking about over the next couple of episodes. Sacagawea was a remarkable young woman, who contributed much to the expedition's success. But as a woman, as a human being, she is almost always subsumed into someone else's narrative. 
be it manifest destiny, Native American oppression, feminism, the right to vote, and civil rights, Sacagawea has found herself acclaimed as a heroine, but not so much for who she was or what she did, but for what she represented. To her credit, Hillary Clinton does not fall for this trap in her speech. But this has led to the legend of Sacagawea eclipsing the woman that she really was. The first issue that any study of Sacagawea has to contend with is that we have nothing written by her. Indeed, the vast majority of the surviving record of her comes from the pens of two companions on the expedition that made her famous, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark. You can tell their opinion of her importance by how they refer to her. They seldom use her name, instead referring to her in relation to her husband, Toussaint's wife and Charbonneau's woman, or her race, using often pejorative language. There were also journals written by other members of the expedition. Yes, there were other people. I don't know about you, but I always imagined it as being Lewis, Clark, Sacagawea and some slimy French dude, but that was far from the case, as we shall see. Interestingly, all of these journals were published in abridged forms, and references to Sacagawea were often omitted. Who wants to read about the Native American woman when there are brave, white, strapping American men to celebrate? It wasn't until 100 years later that a complete edition of the journals was published by the brilliantly named Reuben Gold Thwaites. This restored Sacagawea somewhat to her rightful place but we were still hamstrung by the prejudices of the original authors. The other references to Sacagawea by people who knew her come from William Clark's personal papers and record books, including letters from her husband and other financial records. Everything else that has ever been written about her either comes from those sources or is pure conjecture. Thus, there are huge gaps in what we know about her, and has allowed ample space for legend and falsehoods. Indeed, I'm going to imagine that many of you will be surprised by some of what I will be telling you over the next few weeks. So, if you think you already know everything there is to know about America's most famous translator, do stick around, because I bet you don't. I'd also like to make a quick note about terminology. You may have noticed I've already used the terms American Indian and Native American in this introduction. There is a huge and very justified interest these days in terminology and using the words we use respectfully and diligently, especially about groups that have faced discrimination and oppression. Neither of these terms is perfect, nor are they universally accepted by all tribes and nations. But they are what we have and are both generally accepted. Wherever possible, I will refer directly to the names of the tribe or nation, as that is the preference. Any times I use other terms will be in the context of a direct quotation, or when referring to Native Americans or American Indians as a whole. And just a warning to you, Lewis and Clark, they're not all that woke. In terms of the spelling of Sacagawea's name, I've gone with the G spelling in the title, as that is the more popular rendering of her name. But there are groups, including her native tribe, that spell it with a J. If you are a hardcore J partisan, then please accept my apologies. And finally, before we start, I'd like to thank all of my Patreon supporters who keep the show going. 
If you too would like to support the show, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. Okay, that's enough build up. Let's get on with the story. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Sacagawea was born in May 1788 in the Lemhi River Valley in modern Idaho. She was a member of the Lemhi Shoshone or Salmon Eater tribe, named for the river's bounty, which was the mainstay of their diet. This river is now, imaginatively, called the Salmon River. We don't know anything about her upbringing until the age of 12, but we can assume it was that of a typical Shoshone girl. She would have grown up in a world of rivers and canyons, mountains and plains. Survival in this world was a family affair, with the men and boys doing the fishing and the women and girls doing the preparation and preserving. Hunger would not have been unusual for her, and so, from a young age, her mother would have taught her where to find berries and seeds and which were poisonous. She would know how to find wild carrots and roots and know how to prepare them all skills that were proven valuable for the core of Discovery's success. By night, she would have gathered with her family around the fire to hear tales of Shoshone history, or listen in from her home, as her father and male relatives gossiped and gambled. There would have been feasting and dancing on special occasions, but mostly, life revolved around the constant search for food. Like in all Indian tribes that I have come across, life of Shoshone women was far more equal than that in the contemporary United States or Europe. Their role in preparing the fish caught by the men and by gathering supplementary food was vital to the tribe's survival, not to mention building and maintaining their homes, making and maintaining clothes, and giving birth to the next generation. Without women, the tribe could not survive or continue on into the future, and Shoshone culture recognised this, giving them political rights to depose male leaders, something women wouldn't get in the United States until 1920. Although challenging, life would have been happy for Sacagawea. But in 1800, at the age of 12, her life underwent its first significant change, when the group she was with was attacked and captured by a group of Hidatsa, also sometimes known as Minatari, from the northern plains of North Dakota. Several men, women and children were killed in the attack, which traumatised Sacagawea so much that, so far as we know, she never spoke about it in depth to anyone ever again. That said, once she arrived in the Hidatsa village, which is near the modern town of Washburn, life would not have been too bad for her. It's unclear exactly what her situation would have been, but most likely she would have been adopted by a Hidatsa family and lived as one of their daughters. As a 12-year-old, she was a couple of years away from marrying age, which would have made her a prize asset. They could get two years of work out of her and then marry her off to their advantage. Hidatsa life was quite different from that of the Shoshone. Rather than relying on hunting, 
though buffalo did make up part of their diet, they were primarily farmers, subsisting on corn, beans and squash. Farming was a female responsibility, meaning that, if anything, Sacagawea's role would have increased in importance in her new tribe. Daily life would have consisted of planting and maintaining crops, caring for her family's children, grinding corn, preparing meals and cleaning. A hectic schedule, and very relatable for lockdown. The men took care of the hunting, as well as tribal politics and warfare. But the true success of the tribe was in agriculture, and the relative abundance of food meant that they played a significant role in the Great Plains Indian trading networks, where local tribes met with French traders from Louisiana Territory or British traders from the Hudson Bay Company. The Europeans were interested in fur, and for a time, their entry into the market was extremely beneficial, bringing wealth to the Great Plains. Unfortunately, they also brought modern weaponry, and after their arrival, we see an uptick in the amount of conflict in the region. These weapons had likely been part of the reason how Sacagawea had been captured, and it was fur trading that would bring the first of our important characters into her life, Toussaint Charbonneau. Born in Boucherville, Quebec, near Montreal, in March 1767, he had worked as a fur trapper in Manitoba, before travelling west to live among the Hidatsa. He is almost always referred to as French, which he was ethnically, but he was born into British-controlled Quebec and worked for a British company and never saw France at any point in his life. We don't know much about his success as a trader, but we do know that he wasn't exactly a pleasant chap. While working for the North West Company, one of his party reported that, quote, Charbonneau was stabbed at Manitoua Blanc, end of the Portage la Prairie, Manitoba, in the act of committing a rape upon her daughter by an old Saltier woman with a canoe all, a fate he highly deserved for his brutality. He settled with the Hidatsa in around 1799, and at some point between then and 1803, yes, that is the margin of error we're dealing with here, he married Sacagawea. Much has been spoken about this union. So let's talk a little bit about intermarriage between Indians and French and American traders. These traders were all men and spent almost all of their time travelling or living amongst the Indians. This naturally led to the forming of partnerships and marriages. Quite apart any physical or intellectual compatibility, these matches were also for mutual advantage. The traders were gaining invaluable local contacts who often spoke multiple tribal languages and could integrate them into Indian culture. For the women, there were two main advantages. Firstly, due to warfare, there were often a lot more women than men in tribes, making competition for husbands fierce, and not all of them were keen on becoming a second or a third wife. And secondly, these traders were often resource-rich, with access to goods they could not get in their village. The French were, in general, far less moralising than the British and Americans in the 13 colonies, not demanding that Indian women give up their native culture or religion, making these relationships more common and longer-lasting. Native American women, in general, had far more of a say in the identity of their husband than contemporary Western women. 
There is a misconception that women were sold into marriage, but in reality, when observers thought they saw selling, in actual fact, it was mostly the offering and receiving of gifts between the bridegroom and bride's family, a sign of mutual respect. Now, Sacagawea was potentially a special case. She was a captive, and so may not have had a choice in the matter. That said, equally, she may have been fully integrated into her new family and had as much of a say as any of her adoptive sisters. Sadly, we'll never know, because no one thought to ask her and write it down. We do know that Sacagawea was not Charbonneau's only wife, and there is evidence that his violent ways had not been tamed. William Clark, for example, noted in his journal that he hit Sacagawea during a dinner one day. Now, sadly, this wasn't exactly uncommon at this time, but it was frowned upon. Lewis and Clark were certainly no fans of Charbonneau, calling him, quote, perhaps the most timid waterman in the world, and was surprised to hear that he couldn't swim. They thought him a coward, a liability, and most cuttingly, quote, a man of no particular merit. However, he had two things going for him. First of all, he was a first-class cook. To survive in the wilderness, you have to be resourceful and be able to fashion dinner out of anything you can find. The core of Discovery would grow to depend on his meals, with his buffalo sausage apparently being a particular delicacy. But, most important, were his language skills. And that was what recommended him to Lewis and Clark when they arrived at the Hidatsa village. President Thomas Jefferson had always been a bit of an imperialist. He was firmly of the view that the new United States of America had to expand in order to grow in strength and vitality. He saw the mother country, Great Britain, an industrialising country with increasing urban deprivation and rising pollution, and instead wanted to create a self-sufficient nation of smallholding farmers. Out west, there were vast tracts of unclaimed land that could be converted into farmland to feed the new America. Well, he saw it as unclaimed. To him, the Indians didn't count. And he wasn't the only one in the imperialist game on the continent. Of course, the Spanish were already there, with their viceroyalty of New Spain covering all of Central America and Cuba, and at least part of the modern US states of Arizona, California, Texas, New Mexico, Nevada, Utah, Colorado, and Wyoming. Oh, and Florida and bits around that as well. The French controlled the Louisiana Territory, a huge chunk of the middle of the North American continent, stretching between the modern states of Montana and Michigan to the north, moving south and east through eastern Wyoming, Kansas, and Oklahoma, to Alabama, Mississippi, and of course, Louisiana. France had recently re-secured this from the Spanish in exchange for a bit of Italy in the hope of creating an American empire to rival that of Spain and Britain. But that failed after a disastrous attempt to put down the Haitian Revolution. But now we're getting off topic. Finally, of course, there was Great Britain. After their defeat in the Revolutionary War, their North American colonies consisted of Canada's eastern seaboard 
and a slither of land along the border as far as Ontario. They were, however, also sniffing around the Pacific coast, with explorers and traders travelling through what is now British Columbia and the state of Washington around the turn of the century. Jefferson's concern was that if the nascent United States didn't expand west, the Europeans might get there first. And then, of course, everyone's favourite Corsican dictator made Jefferson offer he couldn't refuse. Napoleon had his hands full trying to, you know, conquer Europe, and his overconfidence army's humiliating defeat in Haiti persuaded him that his dreams in American empire were just that, dreams. So, he offered to sell the Louisiana Territory to the United States for the princely sum of $15 million, or around $18 a square mile. Today, that equates to around $300 million, or $375 per square mile. Now, this sounds like an amazing fact was that it wasn't Napoleon's land to sell. Europeans had only colonised a tiny fraction of the Louisiana Territory, and their claim to the rest was based on we-got-there-first diplomacy. The land actually belonged to the people who had been there all along, the various Native American tribes that had made their home there long before the French came and named it Louisiana. But, as I said, Jefferson didn't really care about them. The concept of Manifest Destiny, or American imperialism, with good branding, as I like to call it, hadn't yet been codified, and the term wouldn't be coined for another few decades. But this is where it all started. But holding the title to the land wasn't enough. America needed to kick the tyres of its new territory, to strike out into the unknown and find out exactly what they had bought. There had been no significant surveys of the American interior, and while traders and Indians had great knowledge, none of this had been documented and drawn into maps. One of the US government's great hopes was that the Missouri River might provide a waterway into the Pacific, thus connecting both oceans through the American continent. A great boon for trade. So, an expedition was required, and it would have two leaders. The first of these was a Virginian, a neighbour of Jefferson's, called Meriwether Lewis. Born in 1774, he was the son of a revolutionary war hero, and had followed his dad into the army, reaching the rank of captain, before becoming Jefferson's personal secretary. The two got talking over drinks, and one thing led to another, and so Captain Lewis was given command of the corps. Perhaps realising he was a wee bit in over his head, Lewis wanted a co-leader, and tapped a Kentuckian named William Clark. Four years older than Lewis, Clark was also a captain in the army, and was renowned as an excellent navigator and cartographer. Over the course of the next year, Lewis and Clark appointed 29 men, all soldiers with hunting backgrounds, barring one slave called York, and a dog, Seaman, Lewis's Newfoundland Terrier, to the expedition. They gave it the pithy name of the Corps of Volunteers on an Expedition of Northwestern Discovery, or Covo ex Norwed Disco, in modern government speak. This is what all the members called it in their journals up until 1807, when one of their number publishes account calling it the Corps of Discovery, which is what we call it today. 
Jefferson's specific instructions to the Corps were to, quote, explore the Missouri River and such principal stream of it as, by its course and communication with the waters of the Pacific Ocean, whether the Columbia, Oregon, Colorado, or any other river, may offer the most direct and practical water communication across this continent for the purpose of commerce. To help them on their way, they were equipped with a water barge, or keelboat, and two pirogues, a kind of large rowing boat. And, of course, a bag full of silver medals, with Jefferson's face on them, to present to any Indian tribes they encountered on the way, as a message of friendship and peace. Less friendly and peaceful was the arsenal of rifles they also had with them for protection, not to mention knives and other protective equipment. They set off from St. Charles, now a northern suburb of St. Louis, in May 1804, and began their long journey up the Missouri River. Their journey went well, apart from one of their number, whose appendix burst, and by October they had reached the place marked out for their winter camp, some land just outside Sacagawea's village. Now, what would she have made of this ragtag bunch of Americans who just rocked up? Well, she probably would have thought they were naive fools with a death wish. For all of their preparations, the Corps didn't seem to know much about Native American culture, demonstrated by how they tried to ingratiate themselves with the Hidatsa. Basically, Lewis and Clark wanted to forge an alliance between them and their neighbours and the United States, hoping that would lead to better trading and military links with them, and not with the British and their Sioux allies the West. Other than their peace medals, their way of doing it was to offer to fight the Sioux. The Hidatsa had to gently explain to them that they were about to wander into Sioux territory, and so pissing them off wasn't probably the best plan. But, other than that, they seemed to have made an excellent impression. And the winter they spent there was a very happy and successful one. While there, Lewis and Clark put their heads together and decided that they needed a full-time interpreter to join the expedition. So far, they had made do with a series of temporary interpreters to help them with their dealings with the various tribes along the way. But, for whatever reason, now they wanted someone permanent who would accompany them for the rest of the expedition. Charbonneau offered his services, along with two of his wives. Lois and Clark agreed, but on the condition that he only bring one of the wives. Now, we don't know anything about this other woman, but the fact that Charbonneau chose Sacagawea is a bit odd. Why? Because she was heavily pregnant, and would give birth to her son, Jean-Baptiste, before they left the following spring. Now, I'm no paediatrician, but traipsing through the wilderness with a bunch of dudes doesn't seem the ideal environment for a newborn. It has been suggested that maybe Sacagawea was chosen because they would be going through territory controlled by members of her family, and that that relationship might be useful to them. She certainly spoke some of the languages and the regions into which they'd be traversing. But I like to think there was something more to it than just that. I think they saw something in her. Something hardy, something tough. She would turn out to be a smart, resourceful and quick-thinking member of the expedition, and an inspired choice. That said, there was very little actually written of her around the time. In one journal entry, a sergeant wrote the following. And just to note, 
Squaw is an offensive term for a Native American woman, and Snake Nation was a catch-all name for all the northern Paiute, Bannock, and Shoshone tribes. Quote, The Frenchman's squaw came to our camp, who belonged to the Snake Nation. She came with our interpreter's wife, and brought with them four buffalo robes, and I gave them to our officers. It's not certain that one of those women was Sacagawea, but the reference to Snake Nation means it likely was her. Clark made a couple of references to her when discussing their negotiations with Charbonneau, but apart from that, nothing. It's very frustrating that we have such an incomplete picture. But then, again, as you know, that's my favourite kind of history. Where's the fun in it when you have all the facts? Whatever their reason for taking her was, Charbonneau persuaded them that Sacagawea was the right wife for the job. And, potentially, she had a hand in it too. This wasn't her village. These weren't her people. She had been snatched from her real home, carted off as a captive, and married off to some foreigner, likely without much say in the matter. This was a chance to have an adventure, to strike out on her own. For a teenage girl like Sacagawea, that must have been an awfully alluring prospect. And so, on the 7th of April, 1805, she carried her newborn baby on her back in a cradleboard, like the other mothers in the tribe had taught her to. She brought food, baby clothes, and a blanket for her son, and that was basically it. That's all they needed to survive in the wild. She and her husband got on board a boat and set off up the Missouri River with the Corps of Discovery, ready to enter legend. And that's it for this week. I'll be back in two weeks to see what Sacagawea and the Corps of Discovery got up to in the West. Make decisions for your company. You look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.